Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. It's a Monday, so we have a lot to get through. Uh, before we even catch up to the news of the day, it was a, it was a pretty eventful weekend. It sure in was. Some, yeah, in some really sad ways. Uh, I'm thinking mostly about all of the deaths in Gaza that happened over the weekend, um, but also in some uh, some very, I think, c- cynical and and also disturbing ways. Uh, and so we are, of course, going to catch up on this backlash against both Amnesty International and CBS. Uh, John, noted Russian mouthpieces, Amnesty International, CBS News. Part of the international conspiracy against Ukraine. Yeah, obviously, right? Uh, yeah, they they both, in their different ways, dared to suggest that the Ukrainian military leadership is not perfect angels and also that maybe someone should be uh, uh, watching um, with some competence, where all these high-powered weapons that we are sending to Ukraine are going. Uh, so yes, many people jumped online to ask the crucial question, how dare you? How dare you make those suggestions? This is a common thing about war. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The common thing with war is that a lot of this stuff, a lot of the material, the weapons, the ammunition is stolen. Um, now, they were, they were saying it was 70% stolen. That is high. Uh, and they've had to retract part of the article and retract a tweet, but bears watching anyway. Yeah, it certainly it certainly does. And I think also the backlash bears watching, right? I mean, how are we supposed to report on a war that has has created teams, right? Where you're not really allowed to have any daylight between uh, your your desired outcome and the desired actions of your your side, you know? Absolutely right. We're going to talk about that some more. We are going to get into the messages carried by different American diplomats to different parts of the African continent and also to the South Pacific, all saying, uh, saying basically, do what we want or else. Blinken, Anthony Blinken is in South Africa today promising a new strategy there. Uh, but I think it is going to be basically that do what we want or else maybe with a different color background or something on it. Uh, we are going to keep an eye on whether there is actually any daylight at all between the Biden administration's supposed new approach to Africa and the past sticks and carrots that we have encountered. We are going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act that just passed the Senate. We are going to talk about whether FBI Director Chris Ray should be worried about his job. We'll ask whether, this is a weird one, John, a serial killer is maybe targeting Muslims in New Mexico? Yeah, in Albuquerque. Four dead in the last three weeks. Yeah. Uh, it's wild um, and very sad. We are going to ask who can and should own languages. Uh, we are going to talk about the, U- the UK's uh, plans to find dangerous radicals before they become dangerous radicals. But rest assured, we are only talking about some dangerous radicals because we wouldn't want to just be surveilling white people, would we? Uh, so <laughs> there is a lot. And then also I wanted to talk about, I mean, we we will probably try to get into this in a little bit more detail later in the week. Um, but I want to give you an innocuous headline from over the weekend that uh, some people are finding not so innocuous at all. Uh, here it is. Amazon to acquire Roomba robot vacuum maker iRobot for $1.7 billion. So Amazon is buying the robot vacuum thingy, right? Uh, and so uh, you you might ask, I might ask, okay, well, Amazon buys stuff all the time. Uh, what, what actually is the big deal here? 
Um, for people who are concerned about privacy or tech monopolies, uh, this is apparently a very big deal. Um, iRobot says it has sold more than 40 million Roombas since it launched in the early 2000s. And the company coincidentally had a very big year in 2020, which is maybe part of what has drawn Amazon's attention. Um, Roomba also overlaps with what Amazon's Echo and their new Astro robot already do. So you could make the case that Amazon is buying up a possible competitor, right? Why make your own robot vacuum when you can just buy the competition and anything else you could possibly want? But the other thing is that these robots are, are data bonanzas, John. Big time. That was one of the things I wanted to say. I'm sorry to interrupt you again. But, you know, on my very first day at the CIA, uh, a senior officer was walking me around the building, giving me a tour. And I happened to look out the window into an enclosed courtyard and there was a, essentially a Roomba. It was a it was an early version of a Roomba and it was cutting the grass. And I said, oh, my gosh, what is that? I had never seen anything like that. And the guy said, that's a Roomba. Uh, he said, we invented it. We're not really sure what to do with it. So we're training it to cut the grass. Well, years passed. This was 1990. Years passed. And the CIA concluded that there was just no use for the technology. And so they released the patent. And it became the Roomba that we have in our homes now, uh, vacuuming the, uh, the floor. In fact, it has a lot of applications. And yeah, it has a lot of applications some of them of which are very troubling for the reasons that you've pointed out. They were so busy focused on whether they could make the Roomba, they didn't stop to consider whether they should make the exactly. Roomba vacuum. Yeah, I mean, here is what people, what people are pointing out is that these are, they are data um, bonanzas and they have some data that Amazon has not yet been able to collect, right? Oh, the story yes. in The Verge says, from a smart home perspective, it seems clear Amazon wants iRobot for the maps it generates to give it that deep understanding of our homes. The vacuum company has detailed knowledge of our floor plans and how they change. It knows where your kitchen is, which rooms your kids' rooms are, where your sofa is, and how new it is. And if you recently turned the guest room into a nursery, this type of data is digital gold to a company whose primary purpose is to sell you stuff. Um, and it also notes that the combination of Roomba, Alexa, Ring doorbells, and other smart home products give the company, I mean, basically give them a view of 100% of the inside of your home, right. right? And an incredible amount of data about the life you live and what needs and desires you have. Um, oh, boy, that's frightening. Yeah. Uh, I also found uh, anti-monopoly writer and researcher Ron Knox on Twitter, um, who breaks it down by saying, Amazon, the company that wants to know everything about American consumers, like where we live, how we shop, what we eat, so on and so on, to buy out a company with perhaps the most data on the size, shape, and layout of the inside of our homes. From a privacy perspective, this is a nightmare. From an antitrust perspective, this is one of the most powerful data collection companies on earth, acquiring another vast and intrusive set of data. So yeah, Amazon buying the robot vacuums, uh, maybe actually a much more dystopian headline than it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Always makes me think of Bill Barr sending his staff after uh, marijuana companies to look for antitrust violations, right? Like talk about missing the forest for the trees. Yeah. Instead of going after big tech, big pharma, baseball, the NFL, 
there are plenty of monopolies he could go after or could have gone after. And I mean, it's not like this administration is necessarily doing any better because the Wall Street Journal today notes that this um, bipartisan antitrust bill that seemed to have so much momentum behind it uh, now probably won't get a vote before the Senate recess and is just languishing. And you have the corporate lobbyists who have been spending lots and lots of money to oppose it saying, well, if it was so popular, it probably would have been passed by now. Right. The other thing that I wanted to note, John, before uh, we bring on our first guests is uh, this new paper in the Oxford Journal of Socioeconomic Review that looks at the economic consequences of major tax cuts for the rich. And so it, it looked at instances of major tax reductions on the rich in 18 OECD countries between 1965 and 2015. It's a pretty big group over a pretty long time. And I want you to take a deep breath, John, and just relax because I'm about to blow your mind, we find tax cuts for the rich lead to higher income inequality in both the short term and medium term. In contrast, such reforms do not have any significant effect on economic growth or unemployment. Our results, therefore, provide strong evidence against the influential political economic idea that tax cuts for the rich trickle down to boost the wider economy. Having to fan myself Uh, at that revelation. So uh, supply side economics that doesn't work. And yet this is what we still have to talk about and fight over with every, you know, I mean, even in the context of this, uh, this act that just passed the Senate, we all have to fret about, you know, how dare we tax these great job creators, et cetera, et cetera. Unbelievable. And as a sort of companion piece, right, we have this uh, New York Times story today uh, talking about how, hey, Uh, if you pay attention, it looks like inflation is actually really hurting uh, people who are already poor and that these are the people who, uh, the exact people who are going to have to lose their jobs to end inflation because the only way our government can agree to try to stop inflation is to have the the Fed trigger a recession, right? As much as it pretends it can possibly raise, continue to raise interest rates without triggering a recession. So for the people who uh, carry the pain of all of our bad decisions, really, be they be uh, be they economic decisions or foreign policy decisions or whatever. Uh, first, you get to live hand to mouth, right? And you get to watch inflation eat up the couple dozen dollars extra that you have every month. And uh, then when the rest of us can't take it anymore, you get sacrificed and maybe you lose everything along with your job to spare the rest of us your pain. Right. And yet, you know, this is the country that goes around the world telling everyone you got to do you got to do what we do you got to listen to what we say this is the this is the pinnacle of human imagination in terms of of how how we can live and help each other that's the uh that's the society we've given ourselves you know you think we would have figured this out decades ago but we just haven't or you know i mean some people have and it just turns out that there are some really powerful people who are who are benefiting from it who are uh yeah, that's more and likely. some of them are outright, uh, just outright and uh, honestly opposed to poor people living better and others kind of uh, pretend and pussyfoot along the way of continuing to oppress the poor, the poor and uh, support the rich. So that's right. Yep. Also, John, did you see this big Vanity Fair uh, puff piece on Rachel Maddow? I, I saw it yesterday and it just enraged me. <laughs> it really did. Why? I can't stand Rachel Maddow. I I think she is such a phony. I think she is a mouthpiece for the Democratic National Committee. There's nothing progressive about her. She to me, she is the definition of of a mainstream mouthpiece. I thought it's interesting that I mean, the piece goes into 
whatever. It's all about like her fly fishing and, you know, what it's like to work for her and her history as a broadcaster. Uh Um, But what's interesting is what she's doing now and what she's getting. I think it was she's getting 30 million a year to do um, like some podcasts and, and movie treatments or whatever. And they're all based in the past and centered in America. And I think that is really interesting. Like she is currently apparently working on a historical narrative nonfiction podcast set in World War II era America. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's going to talk about, you know, the threat of authoritarianism and whether or not criminal law is the appropriate venue uh, and has the right power to handle these kinds of threats, blah, blah, blah. There's another one that's, again, I think focused on um, women in post-World War II America. And like, you know, sure, there are interesting stories to be told, uh, I guess, about these time periods and, uh, and to reflect on when it comes to trying to understand our own time period. But, you know, I happen to be listening to a historical podcast myself right now uh, that focuses on American foreign policy, you know, an American policy toward the outside world, right? It's about the Korean War, a war that we do not get taught anything at all about in the United States. Yeah. probably deliberately, because it provides such an enlightening framework for understanding uh, our Cold War policy, for understanding all of our contemporary policy in East Asia, for, for um, you know, filling in gaps of the American foreign policy pattern, which is to, uh, you know, cowboy around in deadly fashion in the rest of the world and continually have other big powers say like, hey, would you, could we talk about this in a in a multilateral format. Hey, we have these global formats. We're talking about this. Why, why don't we do that? And that's to me, look, the historical, uh, historical podcast, right? And reading history obviously is extremely valuable and you could learn a lot from it. And what a Rachel lot. Maddow here is doing is just absolute navel gazing and ignoring our impact on the rest of the world also during that crucial time period. And so she's getting tens of millions of dollars to just continue to tell Americans that the only interesting stories are about ourselves inside our own country and to ignore the impact we're having on the rest of the globe. I think it's actually really fitting that this is what she has set out to do. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I just don't understand the, the, the hero worship around her. Like $30 million a year, and they paid her $30 million a year to go on sabbatical and develop documentaries, and she wrote a book, and. I, I just don't understand the fascination with uh, with Rachel Maddow. You know, she I think used it's to the be on, She used to be on that progressive station on Sirius XM, right, with Bob Kennedy Jr. and a whole bunch of other people. And the station went went belly up. But of all the talent there, and there was a lot of talent, she was the only one that really made it uh, financially in the mainstream. Yeah. Don't understand it. We should all be so lucky. All right. I think we'll take a break there and come back and get into some of the more interesting foreign policy uh, stories of the day. Huh, John? That sounds good. There's a lot going on. All right. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik and we will be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we're going to take a look at some of the stories that unfolded over the weekend and are unfolding today in Ukraine, in Africa, in the South Pacific, and in China. Joining us for all these conversations is KJ No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. He's also a member of Veterans for Peace. KJ, as always, thanks for being here. Thank you. Be with you. I want to talk first about what happened over the weekend with two pieces of reporting that cast some scrutiny, however gentle, on Ukraine. And so I'll I'll explain what happened briefly. Um, First, you have this Amnesty International report from Thursday that said, Ukrainian forces have put civilians in harm's way by establishing bases and operating weapon systems in populated residential areas, including schools and hospitals. Amnesty said these tactics violate international humanitarian law and they endanger civilians. And that Amnesty has documented a pattern of Ukrainian forces putting civilians at risk and violating the laws of war when they operate in populated areas. And the backlash to that was immediate, right? With people accusing Amnesty of doing Russian propaganda. Amnesty put out a half apology saying it deeply regrets the distress and anger that our press release on the Ukrainian military's fighting tactics has cost, though uh, it did not retract the report and it did not, as far as I know, change anything in it. Uh, The head of Amnesty's Ukraine office did resign over it, however, and if you look at some of the comments on it from um, social media, they are mind-boggling. Now, uh, you know, after that report, You have a well-known Russian handmaidens, CBS, being called on the carpet. CBS released a documentary over the weekend called Arming Ukraine, in which it asked what kind of oversight there was of all the weapons and other war material being sent by the U.S. and allies to Ukraine. These are the same questions that people have been asking since we started sending billions of dollars to Ukraine. Where is this going? How is it being tracked? how much of it is being diverted, and what are the consequences we are creating for down the line. CBS quoted this fellow, uh, Jonas Ullman, founder and blue, uh, CEO of Blue Yellow, which is a Lithuanian organization that has been supplying frontline Ukrainian units with what they say is non-lethal military aid. They've been active there since 2014, right? So these are not like uh, rubes who've just wandered out of a cabbage patch into Ukraine. Um, they quoted this man, Uh, in April as telling them that just 30 to 40 percent of the supplies coming across the border reached their final destination. And that detail caused people across the board to freak out. Uh, CBS went back uh, and turns out everything's fine. Situation's much better now than it was a couple months ago. And more stuff goes where it's supposed to. They didn't tell us how much more. Uh, But CBS took so much heat that it ended up yanking the documentary entirely and says now it's going to update it to re-release it at a later date and I guess find a way to make everything look hunky-dory. And so it seems to me, KJ, that there is a pattern here where when anything comes up that is critical of the behavior of uh, Ukraine or its allies, Uh, Anytime this unpleasant information comes up, the response is to immediately accuse those of reporting it, of doing Russia's bidding and trying to squelch it. And so I wanted to get your response to these two reports and also to to the reactions to them and what the reactions have created. Yes, this is absolutely critical news. I mean, I think there are other reports that have shown that 70 percent do not 
reach Ukraine, and they're diverted, God knows where. But generally, it's understood that weapons going to Ukraine, going into a black hole, and these are very, very lethal weapons for those for these things to be diverted to a black market or just to circulate, you know, puts the entire world at risk. But you're absolutely correct. There is a pattern to squelch any critical information. And what's interesting, as you point out, is it's not to refute the fact, but to accuse the people who disseminate this information of being stooges for Russia. I mean, very simply, if it turns out that the truth is doing Russia's bidding or that objective reality, observable reality, seems to be doing Russia's bidding, then we have to have a deep think of what is going on in the world. If your assertions, your worldview cannot tolerate any uh, refutation, then we're no longer dealing with scientific reality. We're dealing with articles of faith. And when you operate purely from articles of faith, then you are setting yourself up for a very, very bad outcome. I think, you know, the Crusades were one of those, uh, you know, outcomes that we saw. Uh, the, the third thing I point out is the critique by amnesty is interesting because amnesty has always been uh, a fairly bad actor. You know, it, it's one of the most discredited NGOs around, along with Human Rights Watch, because it selectively weaponizes human rights as a of imperial foreign policy, and I'm talking about Cuba, I'm talking Venezuela, Nicaragua, Hong Kong, support Daniel Hale for nine years. They claimed that Julian Assange was not a prisoner of conscience, and they were directly involved in the murder of Black Panther Fred Hampton, and, and, and they were involved, directly implicated in fabricating the lie about the babies tossed out of incubators in Kuwait that led to the war, the first war against Iraq. So they are a bad actor. But when an imperial stooge like Amnesty turns tail and starts to attack uh, the received story, then you know that something's going on. And that suggests that Zelensky is in favor with the imperial ruling elite and that Ukraine is being shifted to the back burner in terms of imperial concern. Yeah, this has been, I, I have seen this analysis made and people are, uh, you know, I think you could point to some of the uh, comments that have apparently been made to Tom Friedman in the in the uh, pages of the New York Times as more sort of softening up, uh, a softening up process, preparing people for maybe the West to uh, decide that they're done with Zelensky and there is somebody else who uh, will be more useful to them in Ukraine. So yeah, it definitely seems like something that's worth keeping an eye on. The other thing, KJ, I mean, again, we, we wrap the show on Friday and every Friday we wonder what piece of information is going to drop at, you know, 4 or 5 p.m. and get swallowed up by the weekend. And what do you know, this Friday, it was another billion dollars for Ukraine. Uh, in this CBS documentary, it says that the U.S. has committed more than $23 billion in military aid to Ukraine since February. I think it's worth pointing out we have also not managed to agree to cap insulin prices in this time period. And so it kind of seems like you, you have to assume that the administration is now trying to hide some of this enormous spending on Ukraine. And, and I wonder what message you think people should take away from, you know, dropping this bit of news on, on a Friday. Yes, absolutely. I mean, why drop this on Friday, right? I mean, if it's 
something you're proud of, if it's something that you are in favor of, you know, declare it uh, out in public, you know, on a, on a Monday morning. But no, this is the Friday evening drop. And it, of course, it is tied to the classical guns and butter dilemma. Uh, I mean, the simple fact is that uh, insulin costs $98 per dose on average in the United States. It costs uh, $2 and change in Turkey, and it costs 25 in Cuba. So it's anywhere between 10 to 100 times more expensive than in other countries. And there are families in the United States who spend 40% of their discretionary income on, uh, on, on insulin. That is to say that they skip rent or mortgage in order to stay alive or they kind of roll the dice. And so, you know, in this context, you know, the classical idea, you know, that we can either spend money on social services or we can pour it down the drain uh, to the Pentagon, which has never passed an audit in its life. I think that's something that we need to be very aware of. Yeah, I think I think people should, uh, you know, should should have that in the back of their minds every time you get a new news alert about another uh, billion or half a billion dollars going somewhere other than this country. Um, I also want to talk about uh, we have a bunch of uh, U.S. officials traveling, two of them in Africa. We have U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield traveling on the African continent. Blinken is today in South Africa. He's going to go on to Congo, DRC and Rwanda. Thomas-Greenfield was in Uganda and she's going on to Ghana. Uh, Blinken is in Pretoria promising a new strategy for the region. And Thomas Greenfield seems to be reminding African nations that it's going to be the same as past strategies, which amount to do what we want you to do or face punishment. And in particular, Thomas Greenfield took the opportunity to tell African nations who they can trade with and how. She said, countries can buy Russian agricultural products, including fertilizer and wheat. But if a country decides to engage with Russia where there are sanctions and they are breaking those sanctions and they should expect consequences. Uh, Blinken, you know, the aim of his trip is also explicitly to check Russian and Chinese relationships and influence in African nations. And so I wonder, I wanted to get your thoughts on how we should view these efforts by the United States to dictate trade policy to other nations. And also, you know, how credible uh, any promises of a new strategy under these circumstances might be. Well, certainly they are going in there and renewing their old war playbook, essentially, in these African countries with us or against you. Will it go over well? Certainly not. Uh, African countries all have their own memories of uh, U.S. and Western interventions. And, you know, you don't have to be, you know, a genius to remember that the U.S. labeled Mandela a terrorist and gave the information to incarcerate him. You know, they were involved in the assassination of Lumumba, Sankara, Afi, Amilcar Cabral, etc. So the long of Western intervention uh, and and its, uh, you know, responsibility for, you know, the destruction and the violence and the suffering on the continent is not easily forgotten. And I don't think that Blinken can go in there and just, you know, kind of soft talk them and pretend that history doesn't exist. I mean, this is the, you know, this is the, the dilemma of imperialists is that they want to live outside of history, whereas other countries, the history is very present for them in the current moment. So uh, I think this is not going to go over well. Uh, uh, the influence that the U.S. had is now being 
thwarted by the close relations that Africa has with China uh, and uh, with Russia. And I think this is going to not this is going to be a very weak offensive uh, against ground or terrain that they've already seeded a long time ago. And of course, Blinken's trip, you know, follows uh, Lavrov's trip to some of these other countries where, you know, he I think carried the message like, hey, we're here to do business. <laughs> you know, we're not trying to tell you how to vote in the in the UN General Assembly or anything, which I think is uh, probably a much easier uh, message to convey and gets a much warmer response. Um, the other thing that we had over the weekend was a pretty major snub of U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman in the Solomon Islands. She traveled there to attend a commemoration of the Battle of Guadalcanal that was also attended by representatives of Australia and New Zealand. And to my understanding, the prime minister of the Solomons was supposedly going to speak at the event, uh, but decided not to go. And uh, that is being seen as definitely, uh, you know, thumb in the eye of the United States. Uh, And I think we also probably should see this move in light of the pressure the U.S. has put on the Solomon Islands ever since they uh, began thinking about signing a security agreement with China. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that and, and you know, what this snub indicates to you. Because, of course, it's one thing to, um, I don't know, it's it's one thing to, I guess, present uh, alternative security or trade agreements to other countries. And it's another to have those countries actually start to accept those terms and maybe tell the U.S. to go and shove it. So how how important do you think this is? A prime minister not showing up to a meeting with, uh, you know, state official is an extraordinary snub. Uh, you know, it's the, you know, it's the diplomatic equivalent of an FU. And uh, let's just recall that the U.S. closed its embassy in 1993 on the in the Solomon Islands, uh, and then um, uh, most recently the Solomon Islands in Kiribati. Uh, transition from their relations with Taipei and switch their official relations to Beijing. And along with that, Beijing offered $30 million of aid, which was, you know, sorely needed. That leaves only Marshall, uh, Nairu, and Palau and Tuvalu as uh, Taiwan's uh, confederates in the region. The U.S. is livid about that. And there's, you know, suspicion that the U.S. US may have been involved in instigating or stoking some of the color revolution type activities against the government uh, on the Solomon Islands. But Wendy Sherman, you know, has come there. Uh, She's been creating shame for social workers everywhere. She's a former social worker herself. And she's trying to do the Madeleine Albright uh, deal. She was mentored by Madeleine Albright. And she's trying to get official audience and do the kind of soft peddling, soft pressure that Madeleine Albright offered. Well, uh, Sogavari, the PM, that he wasn't even going to show up. And so all of that effort is for naught. And as uh, as you pointed out, it is a monumental um, And it speaks, I think, to the general weakness of U.S. diplomacy in general. That is to say, Nancy Pelosi goes to South Korea and the president, nobody shows up uh, to see her maybe a continuing trend. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, finally about, you know, you know, the the sort of lingering fallout from Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and to South Korea. We, you know, talked about um, talks with the Chinese on a number of topics being suspended and canceled. We had this snub that you mentioned of Pelosi not being received by the newish president there. And we also 
you know, a, a speech that Pelosi made a couple of days ago. Um, you know, she's insisting that despite this this provocation, no, the United States really wants to work with China, and we should also recognize some of the good things that they've done. And she said, you know, on one hand, uh, they that China has um, done some made some progress in terms of lifting people up. And on the other hand, done some horrible things like genocide. And it always sounds so cynical to me that you can be standing there saying, yeah, we have to deal with this country because on one hand, great steps, great strides toward eradicating poverty, but on the other hand, genocide. So we're going to sanction that. It's like, what does that even mean anymore? You know what I mean? It, it, to me, this is a real indication that they, they don't mean what they're saying, right? I think it is very dangerous to continue casually tossing around this this term of uh, of genocide. And I just wanted to ask you finally, you know, what you have seen that maybe hasn't been um, raised as much as it should be in terms of the fallout from this visit. And then also, you know, uh, how long we can go on with this these sort of cynical deployment of, of accusations of genocide against China and continue to say we should work with them. Well, first, I'll say it is incredibly cynical because the State Department knows that there is absolutely no proof for it, which is why the Department's own lawyers told, uh, you know, uh, Pompeo that fine for this, the evidence is not there. And so Pompeo just tossed it out as he was leaving, going out the door. And what was what was the ceiling, the, you know, the kind of unsustainable fraudulent ceiling? that the Trump administration tried to establish has now become the floor for the Biden administration. That tells you where we are. So yes, they're tossing it out cynically because truly were a genocide, then there would be a, you know, a massive uh, uh, mandate to take action. I mean, this not just ethically, but legally, geopolitically, but nothing is being done. There isn't a single bill that uh, is to alleviate or uh, change these conditions. You know, are there any for allowing immigrants from China? Well, of course not, because the people in Xinjiang are doing just fine. In fact, they're doing better than the majority uh, people of color in the United States. So yes, completely and totally off the cynical. But I think it goes back to uh, what you asked about, you know, the larger picture and the continuing activities. Uh, the out, the fallout of Nancy Pelosi's uh, trip to uh, to Taiwan Island has been that China has encircled Taiwan. Uh, it is uh, rehearsing uh, military exercises, essentially a blockade. It's supposed to end them on Sunday, but it says no. We're going to continue these. And once again, we can note that in 1996, in the first Taiwan Strait, in the third Taiwan Strait crisis, the U.S. Sent Seventh Fleet and interposed itself between the PRC and Taiwan Island and essentially shut down uh, the exercises. This, the USS Ronald Reagan has hiked it out of the 180 degree turn and it's getting out there as fast as possible. So once again, I think it signals, you know, the lack of resolution and the lack of strength that the U.S. can actually bring to bear in the situation, which does not make the Taiwanese happy. And 90% of them believe. Uh, that the U.S. will not do anything to help them, and they're certainly not going to fight for uh, to be, you know, proxies, you know, cannon fodder for a U.S. war. Uh, the last thing that I'll add is that, you know, 
Pelosi, when she was in Taiwan, she received uh, a medal. And this was the propitious, uh, this was the medal of propitious clouds. It's the highest honor that Taiwan gives to civilians. And so she joins the illustrious uh, company of uh, Park Chang-hee and uh, Nobusuke Kishi, a general there, and P.W. Bota, you know, the prime minister and architect, one of the key architects of apartheid. And so all of this is in line with the kind of moral uh, delegitimation that the U.S. continues disgrace itself with around the world. I think that's a pretty pretty uh, good way of summing it up. That was KJ No. He's an activist, a scholar, an educator, a member of Veterans for Peace. KJ, where should our listeners go to look for more of the work that you do? Uh, they can look on MR Online, Black Agenda, Report, of Punch, and other voice and other magazines and websites. And I apologize if I just called you an actor instead of an activist. <laughs> I'm sick today. So any verbal flubs I make, it's because I have a tiny bit of a fever. So I'm going to absolve myself ahead of time because I'm sure there will be more. KJ, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and, and come right back to talk about what's going on in the UK as they continue to look, supposedly look for... Um, dangerous radicals before they become dangerous radicals and also hunt out, uh, you know, anti-war leftists, an even more dangerous breed of animal. Coming up here, we're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits. Here on Radio Sputnik, we bring you the news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, and I am not physically here with Michelle Witte, but uh, but I'm together with Michelle Witte on this uh, I'm always show. there, That's whispering right. in your ear from my perch on your shoulder there, John. Rishi Sunak, one of the candidates for leadership of the British Conservative Party and for Prime Minister by extension, is proposing a program called Prevent whereby people who demonstrate what he calls an extreme hatred of Britain will be referred to the program for de-radicalization. Sunak says that extreme hatred does not mean criticism of the government or governmental policy, and that the policy would focus on Islamic extremism. Still, it's apparently not legally binding, which makes it even that much more confusing. We're going to talk about this with Mohammed Almazi. He's a UK-based freelance journalist and contributor to numerous outlets, including The Dissenter, Jacobin Magazine, The Canary, and Electronic Intifada. Welcome back, Mohammed. Good to have you. Uh, thank you for inviting me, John and Michelle. Mohammed, this uh, prevent idea is very confusing to me. Um, is it legislation? Is it a policy? And regardless, how could this be legal? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Okay, so there's two parts for I've been following Prevent for many years now, ah. uh, even even before I was uh, in journalism, uh, when I was still uh, in the practice of law. And um, so Prevent first. So there's a the counterterrorism strategy is known as contest. And then part of that is uh, uh, you have various aspects of the uh, uh, of contest, which include Prevent. Right. So. There's various things that you're supposed to do in terms of uh, um, 
I think it's like prevent, uh, pursue, right? So there's all these various aspects of it. Prevent, pursue, protect, and prepare. And prevent it, uh, exists to s stop people from becoming drawn into supporting terrorism, right? And, and the thing is, so while, so what ended up happening was there was a policy that ended up being implemented and it was a policy and it was no, this is the prevent policy from 2006, 2007. Um, and it had a mixed sort of review. Actually, originally even the police were opposed to it because lots of it seemed focused on sort of non-criminal activity. Mm -hmm. They even refer to it as the pre-criminal space. Uh, and this duty was on any body that receives uh, uh, public funding. So from nursery school, uh, right, which is uh, what kindergarten say, or is it even younger than kindergarten? But let's just say, you know, the youngest age that you could have all the way up to university and any kind of local council, youth group, any uh, the National Health Service, anything anywhere which receives any any level of public funding. Now, there was all there have been all kinds of reviews and reports into prevent It's highly racialized. It actually merely criminalizes dissent. There is uh, still to this day, but even back in, uh, you know, years ago, th there is no clear social scientific evidence uh, to explain this, these theories of radicalization that the state is using upon what basis they've even established that people go from, from being a so-called normal human being into one who's in the pre-criminal space, what they call to, so, what they refer to, so perfectly legal activities into becoming somebody who engages in politically motivated violence. Uh, and so yet despite the opposition to this, continued opposition, um, they kept expanding it and, and pushing it further. So in 2015, there was a, a terrorism law. You know, there's one on average every year and a half. This one is the Counterterrorism and Security Act of 2015, I think it was, or maybe it was 2014, but it became implemented in 2015. I can't recall. And it, it, it put on a statutory footing. So now it's become not just policy, but legally uh, – a legal uh, obligation for any local authority, police department, education or health department or institution to, quote, have due regard to the need to prevent people from being drawn into terrorism, end quote. Meanwhile, you have all these prevent training seminars and spreadsheets and, and policy guidance that get linked to it, most of it focusing on Muslims, even though they represent a statistically pretty small percentage of the overall population. And then due to constant criticism of it, they started to expand it a bit to kind of tokenistically include like other far right, white nationalist, white supremacist, you know, groups. But even that has drawn sort of criticism, right? They, there are those who wanted to focus on Muslims and Muslims alone, right? Uh, there are others who oppose it, like the National Union of Teachers has repeatedly passed like unanimous or near unanimous resolutions, uh, uh, explicitly opposing it, saying this undermines our position as educators, turning us all into would-be, into potential snitches. We're having to refer people. when, And you get all these weird referrals as well. Somebody raises a question, criticism of Israel, what have you. You get, you know, the police get called or the prevent liaison, who's typically a police officer, gets called into the school. They'll sit the child uh, aside question them. It's also important to note that there have been people who've had their children taken away, once again, in the pre-criminal space. So even though people might think, well, if you haven't committed a crime, there's limited power of the state to do things, but they can do quite a bit, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you have not been found to have broken a law. 
there is this sort of the 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 uh, what is it you you referred to it the so-called de-radicalization yeah, right pro- program pro- uh, program that you get sent to uh, if you've been sort of uh, assessed as as falling within you know the the potential wheel towards radicalization things that you're supposed to be watching out for indicators include um, religiosity sudden religiosity or lack thereof moving away from being religion uh, uh, joining a group. Or, or moving away from from a group, uh, opposition to UK foreign policy was one that was high on the list, and that's been around for a long time. So I don't know what Rishi Sunak uh, means when he says, "Oh, it's mere criticism of the government or foreign policy wouldn't be included," because that's already included. Wow! And right, so and it has been for years. Right, it has been almost since the very beginning. Right, going back, this began under the the administration of Gordon Brown. Was it Gordon Brown or Tony Blair? Might have been, I think by this point in time, maybe Gordon Brown. Um, but under New Labour before, you know. Right. So uh, here's a here's a paragraph. If you've got time, I'll very quickly read a sentence sure. from a, a government uh, publication, right? A UK government publication. The prevent strategy was explicitly changed, and this is in 2011, to deal with all forms of terrorism and, and with nonviolent extremism. That's where the focus is which can create an atmosphere conducive to terrorism and can popularize views which terrorists then exploit. It has also been made clear that preventing people becoming terrorists or supporting terrorism requires challenge to extremist ideas, they don't explain what that is, where they are used to legitimize terrorism and are shared by terrorist groups. And the strategy also means intervening to stop people moving from extremist, albeit legal, groups into terrorist-related activity. And, you know, in, inevitably, that means targeting populations and, and people and communities associated with criticisms of the British state or of British foreign policy or certain aspects of it. And um, uh, it, ironically, so you, you were referring to Rishi Sunak. Yeah. There's like a definition of extremism. Uh, uh, that if you are, quote unquote, an extremist, then you're now under the prevent radar, right? If you get notified by even your psychiatrist. I mean, this is how corrosive this is, that people can't be honest sharing with their psychologist or psychiatrist. Imagine you're supposed to be completely free. This completely undermines your the, 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 the privileged communications or what should be. Because don't get me wrong, we've always had safeguarding rules. Sure. Sure. If you, someone knew or believed that you were going to go off to commit a violent act. Right. They have to report you. Yeah. Or they, they always had the ability to, at least. And it was expected that they would do in educational settings and medical settings. Right. That, so that's not new. This is and if any if anything, that it, this undermines that by casting a massively wide net. So all institutions now or educational ones have a duty to, quote, actively promote the fundamental British values of democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and mutual respect and tolerance of those with different faiths and beliefs. This is set out in the prevent strategy. So anybody who is seemingly oppositional to that um, would then be targeted by prevent. But the irony is there are plenty of Christians who are, right? Sure. I mean, if you're Jehovah's Witness, what about the Tory party? The thing is right now they're propo- there's a bill proposed to abolish the Human Rights Act, because they do not believe that human beings should have fundamental rights by virtue of the fact they're human beings. I mean, they've explicitly said this. Imagine if Trump campaigned on abolishing the Bill of Rights or rewriting it so it, they only apply to U.S. citizens. This is shocking. 
I mean, seriously, this is all shocking. I don't know how in the world this hasn't been covered extensively here in the U.S. media. Although, you know what, now that I think about it for a moment, um, I'm sure that that the the powers that be here in the U.S. don't want Americans to be thinking about this kind of of thing. Um, My God, Rishi Sunak, I don't know a whole lot about Rishi Sunak other than he was chancellor of the Exchequer. He's he's one of the two uh, finalists, along with Liz Truss, the the foreign secretary, uh, being the other who are the the uh, the last two. Uh, challenging each other to be the leader of the of the conservative party is this a way do you think for him to just set himself apart from her in this race or or is this a serious danger to the the civil liberties of britons uh is this something that the the general public there is worried about uh, just to mention who Rishi Sunak is, so him and his wife are estimated to, their net worth, quote unquote, is is estimated at like seven hundred and thirty million pounds sterling. Oh my God, how did that happen? Uh, his wife is also incredibly rich. Uh, um, so, um, and there, the business dealings that she owns, and the so yeah, I mean that's his wow. own. That would be its own separate, perhaps its own separate conversation. But yeah, they are independently, independently of like the the salary that they get, right? Uh, the salary that he gets as being a government minister or a member of parliament. So, in terms of, I think so. Yes and no. Yes, it is. It is just like po- postu- posturing, right? Because lots of the stuff they're saying, right, that uh, uh, opposition to British values is. Uh, is we're going to add this to the uh, notion of extremism here. I was like, well, that's already there, right? This is already like a deeply disturbing, deeply reactionary sort of policy that there have been countless reviews, the multiple UN rapporteurs on terrorism laws and on on human rights. On there's a there's there are UN experts who are supposed to look at how terrorism laws have been impacting civil liberties and human rights around the world. And when they've done reviews here, they've been heavily critical of the prevent program that is actually crushes dissent, that actually, if anything, it seems to make people more likely to want to engage in violence because of how they're marginalized and targeted. And there's a massive blanket of suspicion. So even though these things, like I said, the descriptors could apply to all kinds of people, ultimately is heavily racialized in how it applies. So, but I'm not sure how different he would, him and Liz Truss would be. I think, you know, they're, they're competing for the top job. So each one of them wants to distinguish themselves within the relatively small Tory party membership, sure. who are mostly older and white, right? So, but it's not like what he's saying is a break from policy, nor is there any evidence that Keir Starmer would be that much different to them in terms of these policy. He hasn't spoken out against it, even though there's been heavy criticism of Prevent for years from medical groups, from education groups, from trade unions, uh, and also other you know, civil liberties and human rights uh, uh, organizations have, have, have written reports and analysis of, of Prevent, both theory and practice. It's, it's really turned... Uh, uh, much of the education system into a sort of a hostile environment for people who are genuinely critical. And look, there will be a disproportionate percentage of of people who are critical of the British state will come from black and other ethnic minority groups because these people or their parents or grandparents or great grandparents will come from parts of the world which have experienced some of the very worst 
as a result of British or Anglo-American or even European foreign policies, foreign policy. right? From, from the you know hundreds of going back hundreds of years. So inevitably, you will have a disproportionate number of them from their own historical memory and their own conversations and their own sort of lived experiences will have a different view than somebody who comes from you know. Middle England or, or what have you, somebody who's who's largely oblivious as, right. uh, in terms of this, the, the real ugly nature of both the history, but even the present day reality of these policies. So inevitably, the types of people who will be targeted are more likely to be, it's not just, but more likely to be, you know, black African people, people of black African ancestry, people from the West Indies, people Caribbean, right, or, or Muslims, right, or what have you. So... Liz Truss, I don't see her as being particularly dif you know, different. I mean, you see them trying to distinguish themselves from each other. I'll cut taxes even more. Uh, I'll cut regulation even more. But this, is, this has already been happening. Taxes are already being right. cut, right? Certainly the higher rate taxes, not the lower rate taxes. Deregulation or the removal of environmental protections and labor liberalization of the labor market, basically making it easier for people to be fired and harder for them to claim unfair dismissal. That's been going on for years now. I mean, from a couple prime ministers ago, it was already pretty flexible anyway, even under new labor. Tony Blair boasted that it was one of the easiest countries in the world, uh, in the Western world for somebody to be fired, something to that effect. And that was when Tony Blair was prime minister. And obviously, since the Tories got into power in coalition with liberal Democrats, uh, and then and then as a majority, that is only continued. So I don't see it's more of style than of substance in terms of the differences. Yes. Who knows how hard he'd said, let's just pretend for the sake of argument that for him it's just talk. It does reflect the wider reality that we already live in, including, as I said, uh, legislation being introduced to replace the Human Rights Act with a British Bill of Rights and the idea that there will be rights and privileges, rights and responsibilities, sorry. And so therefore you could lose certain rights if you violate certain responsibilities, but also and we'll see how that goes, right, can be debated in parliament. This is the kind of thing that should require multiple referendum. Yeah, it should. Referendum, but I don't know if it would. My God, I thought the, the Official Secrets Act was bad enough. I, I didn't know anything about this until about an hour ago. This is stunning to me. Uh, With the PREVENT program. Yeah, the yeah, PREVENT yeah, program. Pretty, yeah. I want to ask you too, Mohammed. the UK press is reporting that the Saudi government executed another 80 people over the weekend, with 41% of them being beheaded for participating in pro-democracy demonstrations. They've already executed 120 people so far this year, and they're on pace to break their record of 196 executions. The British press is criticizing these executions harshly. There's not even a mention in the U.S. press, and I actually searched for one. But the British government is not saying anything. It's the British media. Why do you think that is? The difference between the British press and the American press on this particular issue. Do you think that there's a difference between the British media and the British government on this? You know, sometimes you will find, I mean, I don't, I find there have been sometimes years that go by where you hear very little about Saudi Arabia. So perhaps, right? So it's not that th this is a consistent issue in terms I of the see. break. You know, you could be reading The Guardian for years and not even know that Britain and the United States were bombing the hell out of Yemen, you know, under Obama, right? It took a couple of years before The Guardian even mentioned it. So 
I think every now and then they will mention Saudi Arabia, especially when there's beheadings and what have you, but then it will fizzle away, right? So uh, uh, it's not that this is a, an issue where they're regularly taken to task. If anything, Britain's relationship with the Gulf, which goes back even before the United States, right? In fact, Britain helped, the British Empire helped to create these Gulf states. That's still something that most Brits don't realize, both Saudi Arabia and, and I other I apologize, Mohammed. We're headed to a hard break and I have to cut you off. That was the voice of Mohammed Al-Mazi. He's a UK-based freelance journalist and contributor to numerous outlets, including The Dissenter, Jacobin, The Canary, and Electronic Intifada. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with our second hour. So stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Joe Biden had one of the best weeks of his presidency last week. Over the weekend, Democrats in the Senate passed by a vote of 51 to 50, the so-called Schumer-Mansion Inflation Reduction Act. The bill will be taken up in the House this week. And there's a lot more going on today. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said that if the Republicans win control of the House, he will launch an investigation into Hunter Biden and whether the FBI dropped the ball in its own investigation into the president's son. An anti-Muslim serial killer is on the loose in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with at least four people dead so far in the last three weeks. A 21-year-old man in Texas was sentenced to 25 years in prison for trying to kill a six-year-old boy and his father at a Sam's Club because he thought they were Chinese. He blamed them for COVID. Yet another body was found wow. in a barrel in Lake Mead over the weekend. That's number four. Michelle's counting. Uh, Republicans in the Senate. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Republicans in the Senate defeated a measure that would have put a $30 cap on the price of insulin. I'm furious about that. Texas Governor Greg Abbott sent a second busload of immigrants to New York City. That's after he sent 4,000 immigrants by bus to Washington, D.C., Washington Mayor Muriel Bowser asked that the National Guard be called out, and her request was denied. CBS, as we said a few moments ago, is reporting that as much as 70% of the weapons that the U.S. sends to Ukraine never make it there. They're instead stolen and sold on the black market all around the world. We'll try to get to the truth on that. Israel and the Gazans traded rocket attacks over the weekend after Israel claimed responsibility for killing an Islamic Jihad leader. A ceasefire's in place today. And the Greek government is in crisis after allegations that the Greek National Intelligence Service was spying on a CNN business reporter and the leader of the country's Socialist Party. We're joined by Ted Rawl. Ted's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks, John. Ted, sorry to hit you with so much news today. Uh, it looks like we have a lot to talk about. So let's start with Biden's big win in Congress this weekend. Um, I was kind of surprised to see the the light in the top of the Capitol Dome lit well into the night on uh, Saturday night. Uh, the Senate was in session until two or three o'clock in the morning. Uh, they finally passed this uh, Schumer Mansion bill. The House will take it up 
beginning today, and it'll likely pass easily. Biden's expected to sign it into law before the end of the week. But already we're seeing reports that this bill will not do what it says it'll do, namely reduce inflation while increasing spending on climate programs. What's your take? This is uh, basically an attempt to mitigate the damage in the income in the upcoming midterm elections. That's pretty much what everything is right now. Uh, Amer- the, the president's wildly unpopular. There's a widespread perception that the economy is really bad. And, you know, frankly, for the record, I don't think the economy is nearly as bad as people think. But what Ted Rawl thinks doesn't matter. What the voters think is what matters. And the voters uh, feel that inflation is beating them to death and they are very upset about it and they can't really focus on, say, the low unemployment numbers or the uh, the fact that they're able to get a raise or maybe their raises aren't enough to keep up with inflation. So, uh, But that's what this is all about. Um, the, look, I, it's a win for the administration. The problem is I don't see how Americans are going to really see any change in their lives uh, between now and the first Tuesday in November. And I think that's the issue. Uh, people... Uh, you know, Democrats want this may work. It certainly will not work at reducing inflation, but it may do some good things. But it's not going to, I think, you know, be uh, something that's going to move the needle for the Democrats this fall. I agree with you. I think that it's all about perception. I think that the Democrats can say, look what we did. We got this important bill passed uh, through Congress and signed into law. It's going to bring down inflation, even if it doesn't, or even if it does, but not before November, as you said. It's going to spend more money on on climate uh, issues than we've ever spent before. We're going to close some corporate tax loopholes. And you're right. Nobody's going to notice any difference, but it gives the Democrats bragging rights. And I think that at this stage where we're approaching the midterms, that's uh, that's important for the Democrats. Yeah, I don't think bragging rights are, are going to do anything for them. I mean, you know, what I think I did underestimate and have underestimated was just uh, the power of the Roe v. Wade overturning. Um, the Kansas vote still has me spinning. Yeah, I'm shocked I know what it. happened in, in, in Indiana, but Kansas is a very red state. And there are obviously a lot of libertarian-minded Republicans who are deeply uncomfortable with taking away a woman's right to choose. That's a big wedge for Democrats if they, cho- if they exploit it properly. That's a winner for them. Uh, it, could give, it could keep them from losing the Senate or it could keep them from losing the Senate by a lot. Uh, it's, 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 a game, it's a game changer. I didn't really think it was at the time. I think that matters. I, I don't think voters respond to, look, we passed a great bill. It's going to improve your life. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Kevin McCarthy said this weekend that he was going to go after Hunter Biden if the Republicans win the House, which everybody thinks is going to happen. No surprise that he would go after Hunter Biden. But he also appeared to threaten FBI Director Christopher Ray. Republicans lately seem to hate the FBI, uh, which they call a part of the deep state mechanism targeting Donald Trump. What do you think we should expect from this threat and from an investigation into Hunter Biden? Well, remember, the, the, the target isn't Hunter. The, the right. target is Joe. Joe, the big guy, the big guy. That's right. The big guy, Mr. 10 percent. And look, Hunter is, you know, I mean, he was he's a hot mess. He was corrupt as hell. Uh, he basically, if you can think of bad behavior, he did it. And then some that that laptop is just an amazing treasure trove of depravity 
uh, on so many levels, uh, you know, sexually and otherwise, and certainly politically and certainly financially, you know, and every time I think about his connection with Ukraine, I think about, you know, the fact that his father went to, you know, war for Ukraine. Yeah. It's not a good look, really. If I were Kevin McCarthy, I think it would almost be political malpractice not to go after (laughs) Hunter Biden and then Joe. I mean, he'd be the Republicans would be idiots not to. There's clearly a lot there. Clearly, his father more than indulged his son. Clearly, the Bidens, you know, have a let me put it this way. A I want to choose my words carefully here. They're not completely alien to the idea of corruption. Let's put it that way. Right. Right. Good call. Ted, uh, four Muslim men were killed in Albuquerque over the last uh, three weeks or so, and police are finally using the words serial killer. These have been ambush-style killings, and the victims had no relationship to one another. Uh, the only thing they had in common is that they were all Muslims and they were all from uh, from South Asia. Hate crimes in the U.S. have skyrocketed since the start of COVID, but most of these attacks are against East Asians. In the meantime, we're seeing continued violent crimes against Asians in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and this recent case in Texas that I mentioned where the perpetrator was sentenced on uh, Friday. How do we get out of this pattern of violence? It seems to have have happened so quickly when COVID set in. Now COVID's tapering off. Is it possible to return to normal? Sure, until the next thing triggers people. I mean, Americans are live in a deeply violent country, and it comes all the way from the top leadership. I mean, just the other day, you know, the Biden went on the air to brag about killing Al Qaeda's number two uh, before Bin Laden was assassinated, Ayman al Zawahiri, you know, with a drone strike. It never once crossed apparently anybody's minds at the NSC or in the cabinet or in the situation room that it might have been a good thing to do to contact the Taliban and say, we know that this guy is living in Kabul. Uh, we would like you to arrest him. We would like to try him for war crimes. And by the way, you know, all we have a lot of your money that we're sitting on right now. We could let some of that go. We could we 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 could get to be friends, but we could use this friendly gesture from you. We know right, right where he is. We can drone him anytime. We'd rather not to, uh, not do so. Um, you know, I mean. The U.S. is a deeply, profoundly violent country with a violent culture. And so this kind of thing is going to keep happening because the the signals come from the top. It comes from our political class. It comes from the entertainment. It comes from the movies and music we consume. It's video games, everything. But most of all, it comes from the White House. And it always sickens me. When it would, you know, in a situation like Al Sawahiri, where, you know, this is an extrajudicial assassination, and there were other alternatives. There were other ways to get him, possibly, but apparently those were not even explored. That's a good point. I followed with interest, Ted, the Senate vote on capping the cost of insulin at $30. I'm an insulin-dependent diabetic, but I'm lucky. I have great insurance. I've mentioned it on the show a million times. And I only pay about 25 bucks a month for my insulin. But most Americans aren't that lucky. Why do you think Republicans would be opposed to something so desperately needed as affordable insulin, especially knowing that when synthetic insulin was was first invented, uh, the inventors chose not to 
take out a patent on it so that it would remain affordable for everybody who needed it? Well, they don't want, the Republicans don't want anything that smells of national health care to work. And that's kind of where it begins and ends. Uh, If Americans start to realize that they could get cheaper prescription drugs, or they could get, uh, you know, more affordable insulin, or in my case, if I could stop ordering my asthma inhalers uh, from Canada, yeah. where they run they run about 20 bucks each uh, by mail, including the shipping cost, as opposed to the $225 that I would pay with my ACA silver insurance right. plan, then people would start to think, Every other country in the world does this better than we do. What's wrong with us? I'm in Istanbul, Turkey right now. And you can go to any hospital and get much better treatment. There's lots of medical tourism here. You can get, you can come here and, you know, a root canal that would cost $4,000 in the States is going to cost you $200 here. Um, It's, you know, and lots of people do that. Um, You know, we have a terrible system. They just don't want they just don't want the American people to know that. If people see that it works, they won't, you know, they will reject the system. They just don't know. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're right. Tell us what the heck is going on in New York with these busloads of immigrants being sent there by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Um CNN today called it horrific. Uh, a commentator called it kidnapping. Um it's even worse in Washington DC where there have been 4,000 immigrants forcibly put on buses and sent to Washington. Is it even legal, do you think, for Abbott to just force people onto buses and send them to New York or Washington? And what do you expect Mayor Adams to do in New York? It's an interesting question. I I wonder whether the legality, if there's any attempt to sort of ask people in the same way that a cop pulls you over and says, hey, mind if I take a look in your trunk? You know, and then you say, uh, sure, well, then you've given, you know, I wonder if there's any kind of consent, any sort of lame attempt to obtain consent to send people, their people, uh, to the other side, to the opposite side of the country. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, it reminds, this, this whole episode reminds me how in L.A., uh, indigent patients used to be dumped by, and maybe they still are, by area hospitals on Skid Row, like sometimes still in their wheelchairs, still attached to their IV drips, yeah. just in the middle of the night, just like dumped by hospitals because they didn't want to treat them, and they didn't. They, obviously, they didn't want to absorb the cost of of treating them. More to the point, um, and I think. What Abbott is doing is disgusting. Look, Adams has an option here. He can, you know, he's living in a city with 8.2 million people with ample resources where the New York Stock Exchange and the American Stock Exchange are headquartered. Lots of money, lots of empty real estate. He could, you know, take care of them and show that New York is a city that welcomes immigrants and is still the, and that everything that Emma Lazarus, you know, wrote and is quoted on the Statue of Liberty is true and that New Yorkers, you know, have their arms open. Look, uh, these these are people, and you know, with with uh, with a given a little bit of, of help, they will end up being in short order. They will be employed, hardworking taxpayers, and uh, I would just say, you know, welcome them. But for, Mayor Adams has really been a really has been a terrible mayor, and hasn't seemed to be interested in anything other than just going to nightclubs. So, uh, you know, if he can focus on this and, and turn a crisis and a minor crisis into a big opportunity. He could do that. But uh, I, you know, he hasn't shown that ability so far. I saw a couple of comments uh, this morning 
saying that the mayor or at least those around him were considering fighting fire with fire and and forcing homeless people onto these buses and sending homeless people to uh, to Texas and just dropping them off there. Do you think that that's even a a possibility? Well, that seems more like kidnapping because homeless people, for the most part, are American citizens as opposed to, yeah. Uh, yeah, they have they have more rights. I mean, people don't realize that, of course, undocumented workers also have rights but uh, under our Constitution. Anyone does. But I think they have more rights, and certainly politically, they are more protected. Um, if he does that, it's like, oh, my God, you're all you're doing is getting into the gutter with this total POS. You know, I mean, it's just you don't do that. It's like you always should take the high ground in a political, um, you know, spitting match. And this is definitely, uh, that would be a, a really bad piece of advice for the mayor to take. I would agree with that. This CBS story about weapons meant for Ukraine is a pretty big deal today. CBS said that 70% of weapons um, never make it to Ukraine, that they're stolen at various points along the way. But this morning, uh, CBS retracted part of the story They said that they would revisit the numbers and uh, they deleted a tweet. This all comes from this uh, documentary that they made in previous conflicts. And I'm thinking about Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, lots and lots of weapons just never, never made it. That happens in war. What does it mean, do you think, in the Ukraine conflict? Is the problem overstated? Is it a problem with with endemic corruption in Ukraine, or is the problem the way the U.S. delivers weapons? I don't know if it's the way the, 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 the U.S. delivers weapons. Uh, that's a question I would ask for my, to my father, who's retired from the U.S. Air Force and knew a few things about shipping weapons overseas. But I don't think that's it. Look, let's, let's get real here. I mean, Ukraine has a long and tortured history of financial corruption. Uh, you know, it ranks very low on Transparency International's list of uh, countries that are not corrupt. It is a, it has a history of it. And you're right, John, this is, this is something that uh, goes on in every war. And it's, uh, but I think it happens even more in countries that are exceptionally corrupt, like Afghanistan was exceptionally corrupt, which is why the Afghan National Army often, you know, didn't found themselves without food, water, bullets, guns in order to fight off the Taliban. So, um, you know, I, I think it's when you have a kleptocracy, when you have a government that's not really, you know, it's not a true democracy, it's not really accountable to anyone. I mean, you know, we're talking, Ukraine's a country that only, you know, took all but one news station off the air and it's, uh, and then they replaced uh, all the other rival news stations with the same pro-government programming. I mean, you know, it's it's just not what the American people have been told it is, a scrappy democracy, you know, fighting for its uh, freedom and individuality. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, that's just, just not true. And so, I mean, this is kind of a reflection of that. And, I mean, that said, there's no way anyone who just looks at a map should clearly see that you know, Ukraine was never going to defeat Russia. You know, that just wasn't going to happen. Even if all the weapons arrived and even if they were all used properly, Russia was going to win this. And, you know, the, the, the Russians have more motivation. They have more, they have more assets. They have, uh, you know, so it's just a ridiculous, it's just a completely ridiculous 
scenario just for people to still be saying as i read every day on quora and other sites oh the ukrainians are going to win blah 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 like not really no yeah not gonna happen uh you know cbs it seems to me uh is um is sort of they've stumbled onto onto something that has happened many many times in every war the united states gets involved in you know so many of the weapons for example, meant to go to Syria, ended up in Libya. Uh, weapons meant to go to Iraq, ended up in West Africa. Uh, in Afghanistan, those weapons ended up in, in the Philippines and that uh, insurrection there. This is, this is what happens. These middlemen steal weapons. They end up selling them on the black market. Um, I mentioned on the, the early show today here uh, on Radio Sputnik, that the U.S. delivers these weapons to Poland or to Estonia or Latvia, and, you know, they give the thumbs up and, okay, you're going to get these weapons to the Ukrainians, and then the weapons don't get to the Ukrainians. Now, Ukraine, we've very conveniently forgotten in this country, is one of the most corrupt uh, countries on the planet, okay? And that's not John Kiriakou's opinion. That's the United Nations uh, ranking it as one of the most uh, corrupt countries on the planet. Uh, so why we're shocked or why CBS is shocked that the majority of these weapons don't make it to those brave freedom fighters uh, on the front in Ukraine. It's, it's a mystery to me. Like, do people not read the papers? Do people not pay any attention to history? to see what happened in previous conflicts? Why are we so shocked that it's happening now? John, as you well know, people do not read the papers. And no, people do not <laughs> follow history. And they don't remember history, at least not in the United States. I mean, it's an extremely ahistorical society. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not even like they knew the history in the, in the first place in order to forget it later. Um, they never knew it to begin with. And, uh, you know, it's like, obviously... If you study this stuff, you know that uh, this, there's always what they call shrinkage. I personally, I personally right. always think of the the twenty four billion dollars in cash, you know, uh, that was sent on a C one thirty car. Sorry, four C one thirty cargo planes to Iraq during at the beginning of the uh, U.S. invasion in like oh three oh four. Every single dollar went unaccounted yeah. for. Uh, you know, I was I was always like, well, I, I hope there's some GIs with really nice split level homes in this in the in the suburbs, because uh, I mean, twenty four billion dollars is still, as you know, Senator Proxmire like to say, a, a lot of money, you know, once it adds up. That's right. That is right. Ted, observers are worried about the possibility of a renewed rocket attack between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza after Israel killed a leader of the Islamic Jihad. Um, there's a ceasefire today. I've scanned the Israeli press. It's They say it seems to be holding. Israel has no permanent leadership right now. There's a caretaker prime minister, a caretaker cabinet. Elections won't be held until November 1st. Do you think that this is just a little blip or do you think this is the beginning of a serious problem? Well, with, with Israel and, and Palestine, you never know, right? Yeah. I mean, we had the full-fledged, uh, I think, was it was it 2012, the, the giant Gaza yeah. war? Uh, and uh, there's you just you just sort of never know. I mean, these things they, there's lots of eruptions that 
you know, flame out after a day or two or a week or whatever. And then sometimes things turn really ugly and you just never know. I mean, that's the problem with the Middle East. It, you know, with Israel-Palestine, it's never been resolved. It's never been fixed. Uh, and there's no attempt to. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a powder keg and anything could happen. You just don't know. I mean, no one can know. I know you're not an expert on Greece, but there's a there's a story that has just fascinated me the last couple of days. The country is in the midst of a spy scandal right now, and Prime Minister Konstantin Mitsotakis addressed the the country today. It seems that the Greek National Intelligence Service has been spying on a CNN business reporter and on the leader of the Socialist Party who also happens to be a member of the European Parliament. Today the Prime Minister called that a mistake. Well, as recently as a few days ago, there were rumors that that Mitsotakis would call new elections because he's so popular right now that he would just win them in a walk with a huge parliamentary majority. Now there is fear that this scandal could actually bring down the Greek government. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, it's, you know, I mean, the Greeks have the Greek government has a, you know, kind of a in America, unknown history of far right, you know, military. There was a military junta during the Cold War. Um, there's just there's a lot of um, you know there's there's kind of like very strong forces of reaction reactionary politics there, and uh, you know I, I it's it's not the paranoia of the socialist. It, it's not it's and the CNN thing kind of is laughable. Um, it's like, what, what were they hoping to learn, right? I mean, what were they so worried about? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's, who knows? I mean, Greece is an interesting country because it's in the middle of a lot of, you know, it's sort of sure like is. you pull it, it's like, a, it's like a Jenga piece. You pull it out and a lot of other things fall apart, right? Like Turkey, Italy, all of, all of the Southern Mediterranean. Um, it's, it, by itself, you might not care, but it affects a lot of other things. Okay, last question. I know that you're a baseball fan like I am. Uh, and there was a little bit of a kerfuffle over the weekend in Philadelphia. Uh, Pete Rose, uh, one of the greatest hitters of all time, who is famously banned for life from baseball for betting on baseball games, betting for his own team, not against them, but still, you can't bet on baseball. He was supposed to have been uh, inducted into the Philadelphia Phillies Hall of Fame. This was back in 2017. And then just before he was uh, going to be inducted, news broke that um, that back in the 1970s, he had had sex with a 15 year old girl many times. He claimed that he thought she was 16, which is the age of consent in the state of Ohio. He was 34 at the time. And so the Phillies just kind of dropped him. Well, this weekend he made his first appearance uh, in Philadelphia since this kerfuffle. He very defensively refused to answer any questions. Uh, a female ESPN reporter asked him about it and he said, that happened 55 years ago, babe. Uh, it, uh, it was before you're born. So don't ask questions that you don't, that, uh, you don't know anything about. Uh, not, it, it didn't really incite, uh, you know, confidence. What, what do you think about Pete Rose uh, and this movement to uh, get this ban lifted and uh, and have him at least voted upon to uh, make it into the Hall of Fame? Well, I don't understand morals clauses when it comes to uh, athletic 
or artistic or other achievements. Look, I, I'm a little biased here. I grew up as a fan of the Cincinnati Reds. I grew up in Dayton. Uh, you know, he was Johnny Hustle in the uh, yeah. 70s. Charlie uh, Hustle. I saw, I, I, my dad took me to the World Series. So, um, you know, I mean, uh, look, I think he was a remarkable player. And I think, look, the fact that the man basically is a pig doesn't mean that he is a, you know, that we should just, to me, it's like, Look, you either you either won that marathon or you didn't. Right. You either you, you either you either crossed those bases or you didn't. If we start getting into, you know, oh, you were you know breaking the law by sleeping with underage people, or underage women, or uh, you know you were uh, you know whatever betting on sports or you know as in other cases like uh, you know engaging in like dog fighting or whatever. <laughs> right. um, who cares? I mean, I mean, I, I think the point is there's a legal system that deals with that stuff. Right. And like, you know, it's, it's like, hey, if there's a if there's a legal remedy for the fact that he was, uh, you know, let's say this woman was really 15 and it was against the law. I think it's past the statute of limitations. But if it's not, you know, go after him, whatever. Do your worst on social media. But athletic accomplishment, you know, you can't just sort of uh, put your. I think your your hands over your eyes and your ears and your you know hands over your ears and say okay well I'm not going to see this accomplishment just because I don't like you know the cut of this guy's jib yeah he's a pig lots of athletes are pigs and you know I mean let the pigs be judged for being pigs but the records should stand and I think you know he should be in the he should be in the baseball hall of fame you know guys I just wanted to uh, pipe up on the question of what would you learn from spying on a CNN business reporter's phone I don't know <laughs> you probably caught at least a snippet of the Roger Waters interview with Michael uh, Smirkonish yes. of CNN where Waters sort of attempts to provide some context on the war in Ukraine and raises the question of you know when did this war actually start you know and and suggests that CNN's reporting is not as impartial as they think it is. The the thing that jumped out to me is, you know, Roger Waters is talking about America's role in, in this conflict, uh, in both, uh, you know, in, in being part of the catalyst for it and now also sort of indirectly participating in it. Smirkonish says, yeah, but what about our role as liberators? Oh, my God. And I just thought, what? this is like, this is like elementary school understanding of World War II. You know what I mean? Like, it just blows my mind that you can be a, a, professional journalist and ask someone seriously, what about our role as liberties? He was talking about also, I think he was referring to World War II, which was definitely not, you know, won single-handedly by the United States. I don't, I feel like I didn't want to let the show pass without commenting on that. And just how, you know, childish the analysis is of some of the people who are supposed to be bringing us, you know, world history in real time and helping us understand it in real time. What about our role as liberators? You know, the thing is, Michelle, I had a personal experience like that in 2001 when I was covering the war in Afghanistan for the Village Voice. And there were several reporters, and I will name one name uh, of the organization anyway, for the Washington Post, who came and said, oh, and this is a quote, we have taken Talakan. And I was like, what do you mean? Who's we? It's like, uh, we, you know, our side. And I was like, we're media. We're journalists. We don't have a side. We just cover it. And and they looked at me like I was dumb as a stone, which clearly I was, because that's not the way it really works. Wow. Yeah. So many, so many journalists fall into that. 
Well, thank you for joining us, Ted Rawl, and enjoy Istanbul. Ted is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll take another short break and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we wanted to take a minute uh, to look at a story that I think has has some interesting things to reveal about the way intangible heritage is is recognized and processed, and in some instances profits from. Uh, we are talking in particular about some. Uh, missionary work and language preservation work that has been happening on uh, reservations in the United States and who ultimately profits from those exercises. We are joined by Darren Thompson. He's a reporter for Native News Online and for Unicorn Riot. Darren, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me again. Glad to be here. So I want to talk first about what happened recently on the Pine Ridge Reservation of the Oglala Sioux. Uh, The tribal council voted at the end of last month to temporarily suspend the work of all Christian mission organizations on the reservation. Um, All churches and religious organizations were to, you know, pause their work and then fill out a new form registering with the tribal council. But it seems like the effort was really aimed at two particular organizations, um, this one called the Jesus's King Mission and the other, this Dream Center Mission, which appear to have used their locations on the reservation to denigrate Lakota culture and beliefs. Um, The suspension does not seem to have lasted very long. So I wonder if you can talk to us about what the tribal council was attempting to do and what they were attempting to stop in terms of uh, the the character of some missionary work on this reservation. Initially, they passed a resolution signed by the president of the tribe, who is currently Kevin Killer. And initially it was to stop the spreading of hate language, particularly in regards to a brochure that claimed that Tunkashala, which is the Lakota word for great spirit or grandfather, uh, is inferior to the God written about in the Bible. And so as a result of these pamphlets being distributed, uh, they were done so privately to a private contractor in a Baptist minister's home by the name of Matt Monfort. So the tribe had, the tribe as in the tribal council, which is the official tribal government, who has to establish a meeting, have a quorum, conduct a vote. All of this stuff is recorded by the secretary treasurer of the tribe. They voted to ban this person. And this community, like the United States community, if you will, or They have a rule or a constitution that requires that every person, regardless if they are a citizen of the tribe, if they are a resident of the tribe or not, to have what is called due process. And in human history, that concept of due process is new here in the United States. In other words, this person had to be notified in some way, shape, or form that he was officially banned from the reservation. And according to this 
minister who I spoke to with myself, he has not been notified because according to the constitution of the Oglala tribe, each person also has due process that has up to 72 hours to write a denial or, or uh, an appeal, like to oppose this particular decision. So he hasn't even reached that point yet. And frankly, the person doesn't live on the reservation. According to some other sources, including the Rapid City Journal, uh, this is not the first time the tribe has passed an ordinance or a resolution of this matter banning someone, particularly uh, a missionary or a, a priest who is passing out information that is harmful to the local culture and spirituality. So what happened was they did this and had and held another emergency meeting three days after, which was uh, Tuesday, the very early part uh, of uh, last week, and ruled that all missions and churches will be suspended until the tribe gets all of these new forms completed and the tribe conducts background checks. And then they realize between this next, within 24 hours that they have an ordinance or law that does not allow the tribe to do this. Mm-hmm. They went and passed an ordinance and realized that they had made a mistake. And in reality, the reason why they revisited this particular ordinance is because a lot of the family members of people who were on tribal council were calling them, asking a, a, a simple question of, are you telling us that we can no longer pray? had funerals, people had weddings, people had services. This is one of the many ways people receive their services in the Pine Ridge community. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if you know, but uh, this community is the poorest county per capita in the United States, Ogallala, Lakota County. And wow. a lot of ways families receive their food is they go to churches or missions. Mm-hmm. And yes, they drink the Kool-Aid, if you will, and then they get a meal. And for some mm-hmm. children most wholesome meal they will have during this day, perhaps even during the week. And so that's a whole nother issue that generally needs to be discussed. And so what happened again is a, a person was banned according to the mission that the person runs, which is called Jesus is King mission. And the tribe then reiterated that all were asked churches and missions to do is to fill out a new form, which is Mm -hmm. state of South Dakota's form, where we want to know what they're doing and how they are spending their money. Mm -hmm. We don't know if this has the authority to ask where they are spending their money, like the IRS does, for example. Mm -hmm. So they went on further to ban or restrict the use of images uh, regarding the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation or children. Uh, but this is already set in place. I think a lot of people know that you can't just take children and then you take pictures of children and then use their images for the sake of, of raising money. Because mm-hmm. churches and missions raise in excess of, of a million or more dollars a year, and much of it is claimed to not be or or spent in the community. Mm-hmm. So essentially, this community, if it wants to continue uh, with banning, so 
broad scale, the Pine Ridge and or Oglala Sioux Tribe did not ban churches and missions. It is has its mm-hmm. own law that states specifically that it cannot do so. Tribes can, however, ban particular people, even their own members, for other reasons that they deem is unsafe or mm-hmm. uh, something something that hopefully we never have to speak about. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, uh, Darren, it raises all these, it raises so many questions about, you know, when you say the, the original um, attempt was made complicated by people calling their tribal representatives saying, well, am I allowed to pray? Am I allowed to go to this church? Is uh, our, our services going to go forward? And of course, you know, uh, Christianity was brought to this continent by missionaries, but it also doesn't necessarily uh, leave me, you know, many hundreds of years later to sit in any position of judgment on on what people decide to believe or not to believe. But the the way that we have created the way the U.S. government has sort of set up this reservation system sort of uh, leaves people vulnerable uh, to exploitation by these groups. Right. Because if you if you, you know, set set aside land and say, yeah, okay, you can you can govern yourselves, you can be sort of autonomous, but we're not going to really give you any freedom to raise money and to provide the kinds of services people need. You're going to have to, um, you know, in a lot of cases, rely on charity, in some cases coming from this church, then you just, you set up a scenario where there's not a lot of free choice when it comes to what people decide to believe or not. It becomes really, you know, it's, it is a, a really complicated legacy of colonization. And you also have this happening in the shadow of the Pope's visit to Canada to apologize to indigenous people there for the church's role in the brutal residential school system um, that took Indian children from their homes killed many of them and explicitly aimed to separate them from their culture. And so, you know, there's a big contrast, I think, between the Pope's visit and his apology and what is obviously still happening on some of these reservations. And so I wonder if you think that, um, you know, that these two issues kind of illuminate each other. And also if you can talk about how, you know, how to talk about this without also suggesting that uh, indigenous people should not be, shouldn't be Christian or aren't allowed to believe whatever they want to believe and make whatever choices they want. Yes, very, very good uh, turn in the conversation and it also is related. And I'll start with a comment that the Pope made while departing Canada. And his comment was that genocide was committed in the residential schools. Now, there's a distinguishment. He didn't say cultural genocide. He didn't say spiritual genocide. He didn't say, however many other forms of genocide there are, it's just a blanket statement of genocide. And then second, there actually is a current mission that exists in the Pine Ridge community, and that is the Holy Rosary uh, mission. And that was old Nicholas Black Elk mission or church who is the next indigenous person from North America in line to be canonized by the Catholic church. Now, this is a very, uh, it hasn't been communicated very much about the process of that because it's still a would be type of situation, but it is definitely related to the Pope's visit and the Pope's apology. It brought up many, many harsh emotions uh, from many indigenous peoples. And that it took, you know, more than 100 years 
for the leader of this religious organization to make an official apology. Uh, of course, it happened up in Canada, and now people are requesting that the Pope come to the United States. And that very well may happen in regards to the canonization of Black Elk. Of course, that'll happen at the Vatican. But I this visit in association with the feelings with that is why, and, and mind you, this was started by a young 20-year-old woman and an organization that she represents called the, called the International Indigenous Youth Council Oglala Chapter, because there's other chapters, of course, who basically attended the tribal council meeting and said, we received these pamphlets and we're sick of seeing our people demonized. And so that fired up a lot of these tribal council members who then agreed with them and said, you know what, maybe it's time that we uh, tell them that they have to leave. And it's still a possibility in some ways, but it is a tremendous amount of political work. You're talking tribal council changes and ordinances, which ultimately need to be approved by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And because religion and faith is a First Amendment right in the United States, it's going to be very difficult for any government, regardless if they're Christian or not, to throw that right out the way. Because then that opens up the door for many other communities to also do the same, where they can say, you know what, we're Catholic in this community. We don't like Lutherans, which we mm-hmm. all know that that has happened in the past, and it's very likely that it could happen again. I do know that uh, in my travels and my experience and being from a Native community, that many people and families who are Native are also Christian. Not all. Uh, I don't know if it's most anymore, and there are reasons why there are many churches still in existence in many Native communities today. There is one particular community in all of the reservations in the United States that does not have a mission and does not have a church, and that is Ponema, Michigan, on the Red Lake Indian Reservation in northern Minnesota, because that particular community has full sovereignty and never got rid of its land during the uh, Allotment Act, the Dawes Allotment Act of 1889. And so, you know, that's all important. All of this stuff relates to colonization, all of it. And I can quote the young girl in the tribal council meeting where she said, we don't need any more of your churches. We don't need any more of your missions. We don't need any more colonization. And so it's one of the ways that the decolonization movement is poking its head out. And there's, way, there's other ways that this is happening uh, currently right now. I'm actually on my way to a tribal climate change uh, conference going on in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Well, I, I wanted to also ask about, uh, you know, it is true that a lot of um, some of the valuable work that missionaries have done around the world is in helping preserve uh, languages that maybe had been only oral in some places, right? And so I wanted to talk about this strange tale of the white man who's behind the Lakota Language Consortium and the Language Conservancy, which are these two nonprofit organizations launched in the early 2000s with the stated aim of preserving and revitalizing indigenous languages, Lakota among them. Um, The owner of these two organizations, Wilhelm Maya, along with his head linguist, Jan Ulrich, they spent years gathering recordings of elders speaking these threatened languages with the idea of creating new or better standardized language textbooks for teaching them. 
However, he also copyrighted the materials that he collected, and now he allegedly will not share them with tribal members except to sell them in the form of textbooks. Um, Maya has been making good money, at least recently, in this progress. Uh, NBC reports that in 2020, in his tax filings, he reported an annual salary of about $210,000 from his two nonprofit groups, while the median income on the Standing Rock Reservation, where he was working, was just over $40,000 a year. May has also gotten more than $3.5 million in federal grants over the past 15 years for his language projects with tribes around the country. The Department of Health and Human Services alone has paid the Lakota Language Consortium nearly a million dollars to create some of the textbooks that the organization sells for $40 to $50 a piece. This is an NBC um, from an NBC news piece on this topic. Now, Maya says that he does give some material away, but he also has to charge for some of it and that these transactions don't necessarily make his work unethical. Um, but, you know, the, the charges, the, the allegations against him were brought by uh, a man from the Standing Rock Reservation who said, you recorded my grandmother over years and years, and now you're saying this belongs to you and you will only sell it back to us. And so the Standing Rock Sioux voted this year to expel his organization from their reservation. And I wanted to ask, you know, if you could talk about, you know, how how to preserve intangibles like language and culture and about who who can and should control this information. And again, when when you are left sort of vulnerable to having outsiders come in and sort of present their actions as helpful and then turn out to be exploitative. Very good discussion and ordeal that we have here. And I can speak from a couple of angles here. One, my mother was a firstborn speaker and she no longer speaks the language. And the only way she can access the language is through a Bible that's written in her language. My mother is Tahana Autumn from Southern Arizona. And, you know, when she speaks this, when she tries to remember how to speak it, she's a, it, uh, tears and pain are associated with trying to remember it. And I, I don't know if it's from, from trauma or just the sadness or the emptiness that she just no longer knows. So she has to refer, revert to the Bible. And so as a result of that, she's often reading man's interpretation of the word of God in her people's language. Interesting component. Uh oh, we might Shoot. be losing Darren a little bit. Yeah. Uh, too bad. We'll see if we can get Darren back on. Um, but I mean, this is also not an issue that we are going to resolve in the next uh, seven minutes on this show. But if he does come back, uh, yeah. John, I know you had something you wanted to uh, to talk about before we. Yeah. There, there are a couple of interesting things that have uh, popped up. Um, first of all, of course, our, our listeners would remember the, the murder of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia. That's when the three white men cornered him while he was jogging through a housing development and they, they shot him and killed him. Uh, they were all sentenced to, I think it was 25 to life or 30 to life. And then the federal government charged them with uh, human rights violations, with depriving Ahmad Arbery of his human rights. They're all being sentenced today for the federal version of that crime. The first one was uh, sentenced, uh, Greg McDaniel, I'm sorry, Greg McMichael, uh, 66, who was the actual shooter, uh, was sentenced today to life without parole. So it, it was a symbolic gesture, but, uh, but it just goes to show you how important uh, this whole thing was. The other two, um, that's Greg McMichael's son. And uh, Travis McMichael and uh, William Roddy Bryan, they're going to be sentenced this afternoon. 
So that was one uh, thing that came up. The other thing that came up, and I'm so glad that we've got five minutes for this because <laughs> I read it this morning and I, 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 I was sitting next to Wilmer Leon and I said, Wilmer, finally, I said, Wilmer, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but this article is so fascinating. I have to tell somebody about it. It's a piece in the New York Times reviewing a new book uh, that is coming out, uh, published, let's see, it's called The Divider. Is this Maggie Hay? Is this Maggie Haberman's book? No, it's uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book. Um, Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times, and uh, Susan Glasser is a staff writer for the New Yorker. So it says here, Donald Trump uh, said to John Kelly when John Kelly was his chief of staff, and you remember John Kelly was a four-star general. He said, why can't my generals be more like Hitler's generals? They were totally loyal to him. Why can't you be like the Germans? And uh, it says here that Kelly, Kelly said, no, no, that's not, that's not the case. And Trump responded, no, no, no. They were totally loyal to him. And the book says, in his version of history, the generals of the Third Reich had been completely subservient to Hitler. This was the model that Trump wanted for his own military. What could go wrong? Well, really? yeah, what could go what could go wrong? But the funny thing is that Kelly finally said, well, you know, they tried to kill Hitler three times. And the third time they almost succeeded. And and Trump said, well, I, I never heard anything about that. All I know is I mean, that they were loyal. Well, they weren't loyal. Don't you know anything about history? They also lost. And they lost. Why do you want your your general's behavior to be modeled after the, the powers that, that lost. And then, and then the greatest, uh, arguably, the greatest uh, German general was Erwin Rommel, who uh, was forced to commit suicide uh, lest he be executed and have his family uh, arrested as well. This, this book goes on uh, at length about General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he gave an interview to the two authors, an extensive, uh, actually a series of interviews, uh, because he said he wanted to come clean. This was a this was a road to Damascus moment for him. He said, "It says here, General Milley's frustration with the president peaked on June first, twenty twenty, when Black Lives Matter protesters filled Lafayette Square near the White House. Mr. Trump demanded to send in the military to clear out the protesters, but General Milley and other top aides refused. In response." Trump shouted at Milley, you're a loser. Then turning to Milley, Trump said, can't you just shoot them? Just shoot them in the legs or something. I, I, to be fair, Joe Biden has said the same thing. <laughs> uh, he should be treated the, the same leg. way Trump should be treated then. Milley says this was the worst day of, of his entire military career. He regrets going out uh, outside the White House that day. He regrets allowing himself to be photographed in front of St. John's uh, Church across the street from the White House. But most interestingly, he went walking through the streets of D.C. while helicopters flew low yeah. overhead. Yeah. You know, right. looking every bit the man who was here to impose order by any means necessary. So, yeah, I bet he has some regrets. And, you know, he wrote this letter of resignation. He called he called uh, Bob Gates, Bob Gates, the former CIA director, former deputy national security advisor, former secretary of defense, said, what should I do? Gates told him you you have to hang on till the very end so he doesn't try to launch a coup. He meaning Trump. But if you are forced to resign, take all of the joint chiefs with you, all of them. You all have to resign together. So he says a week after the Black Lives Matter thing, 
Milley wrote but never delivered a scathing resignation letter accusing the president he served of politicizing the military, ruining the international order, failing to value diversity, and embracing the tyranny, dictatorship, and extremism that members of the military had sworn to fight against. He says here, quote, it is my belief that you were doing great and irreparable harm to my country. Um, and then he went on to, to chastise Trump for, for making the comparison with the Nazi generals. He says, quote, it's now obvious to me that you don't understand that world order. You don't understand what the war was all about. In fact, you subscribe to many of the principles that we fought against in the Second World War, and I cannot be a party to that. Um, his generals then came to him and said, look, we think Trump is, is unstable, mentally unstable. What should we do? And Milley told them, we have to fight him. The challenge is to stop Trump from doing any more damage while also acting in a way that is consistent with our obligation to carry out the orders of the commander in chief. If they want to court martial me or put me in prison, have at it. Uh, this is some of the toughest language that we've seen so far. I, I'm just fascinated by this. Oh, let, let me add one other thing. Let me add one other thing. All right. Just one little uh, uh, story here. In the summer of 2017, the book says that uh, Trump returned from Bastille Day. You, you might remember this because he reviewed the parade. He said he wanted his own parade, but he didn't want any wounded guys in it because they don't look good. And, and John Kelly said, well, those wounded guys are the heroes. The only ones who are bigger heroes are the ones in Arlington. And, uh, and Trump said, no, I don't want any wounded people. No, no amputees. Nice president. He's consistent. Say what you will about the man. He's consistent, consistently awful. That's where we're going to have to leave it. Hey, guys, Trump, still really bad. <laughs> Every time you turn over a rock, he's still pretty bad. Thanks to everybody who made the show possible today and who joined us. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Hey.